interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. We will take some time for a question and answer. I guess my question would be, how would a person go about battling that too much information so that it doesn't uh, saturate you and numb you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is not just poetry for me. It isn't just abstraction for me. I mean, I I live in the same world you do. I live with my Apple computer wherever I go, and I have my iPhone in my pocket. I mean, I live in the same world that you do. Um, and I find that, you know, even though I've been watching and listening to U2's music for a long time and this song numb for the, all the years it's been out, those words, too much is not enough, I find more and more in my face, actually, because I realize that that is how I live my life. Uh, and it's not, not a small thing. If you have at all a serious interest in this, and it sounds as if you must really, but I would begin with maybe you know, reading a generation ago, Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and wonder, what was he saying in the mid-1980s, asking who won, Orwell or Huxley, about what the modern world would look like. And his conclusion was that Huxley won, that we were, in fact, rather than Big Brother going to take over the West and our world, that in fact we would choose to amuse ourselves to death instead. Um, and it's a, I would say the longer the world goes, the more relevant Postman's critique seems to me to be true. It's exactly what's going on. It goes on politically. You know, you can be wherever you are in this room, left or right, Democrat, Republican, you know. But just think about what we watch in national elections over the last, you know, several times we've done this, really. Postman had his finger on the pulse in the mid-1980s. It wasn't a Republican issue, a Democratic issue. It wasn't a conservative or liberal issue. It was, in fact, that, as he put it, we wouldn't elect Abraham Lincoln to be president again. We couldn't. Even though if we were to walk across a room full of Americans and ask who was the most revered president, most would say Lincoln. He couldn't be elected today because of his gangly, awkward persona. Um, we wouldn't do it. It couldn't happen, really. You know, you ask about who do we elect and why it is we require rock stars to be our presidents. Uh, you know, it's a hard question. It's a hard, hard moment before us, really. Um, so I would say I would begin with Postman there. Um, I would read another book written a few years ago by Thomas D. Zengotita. It was a cover story in Harper's, the spring after 9-11. And the title of the essay in Harper's was The Numbing of the American Mind. The Numbing of the American Mind. It came a book called Mediated a few years later. Mediated. And he has this you know, awful moment in his writing where he says, when you've watched the 947th time, the t- towers burning, and Feynman weeping in front of the towers that are burning, what do you do with yourself? How do you respond? Well, of course, we don't, because we can't. You see, even in our social experience, we find ourselves being shaped by a moment in history where we see so many things that we simply cannot respond to. 
And of course, what we do is we turn the barometers of our hearts down because we cannot respond. We can know, but we cannot respond to what we know. So I would say, you know, in the most recent book I've been drawing upon is a book called The Shallows, which was a cover article in The Atlantic two years ago called Is Google Making Us Stupid? The man is not a Luddite at all. He's not a Luddite for a moment. Nicholas Carr is his name. But it's a very perceptive book about what it means to be alive right now. His argument is that, in fact, not just in terms of Internet you know, images and content ought we to be concerned, but he says, in fact, the very way we read the world on a computer screen, he argues, and he's listening to brain physiologists, saying that, in fact, our brains are being rewired right now. We're beginning to think differently about things. He titles the book The Shadows, which is some little finger to the wind about his own assessment of what's going on. We're becoming less and less able to take into ourselves more complex arguments, more nuanced reasons. And we don't want that. We don't have time for that. Because, you see, too much is not enough. I want more. I want more information. I want more information. I want more information. I want to go from hyperlink to hyperlink to hyperlink. And the close reading of complex ideas is harder and harder for us to do. In fact, not for any particularly moral or immoral reasons, but because, in fact, our brains are being rewired to think differently, to see differently. Which I think is a sobering, you know, question to ask ourselves. Um, so how do we respond to that? I mean, I think, you know, we ought to have probably a community-wide conversation about it here tonight. What do we do with this? What are the best practices? But probably part of it is to read some of the best analyses of this and to begin to be self-conscious that there's a problem out here. And then what, what am I going to do with it? How will I, in fact, begin to discipline myself to make choices to, to know in a certain way, to know in a certain way which actually nurtures in me a sense of responsibility for what I know? Uh, I know, to use that word here oddly, I suppose, but after I watched the Twin Towers crumble a second time, I didn't watch it again. I just thought, I've seen what happens. I don't want to see this again. I don't need to see this again. I will only numb myself, really, to things that I really need to care about. I don't want to become a hard-hearted person to tra tragedy and horror in the world. Um, it's a very good question. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was the the enlightenment, and that sort of came through in a number of places. And You're doing your PhD on the enlightenment, I suppose, in intellectual history or something. No, I'm I'm yeah. actually a physicist, um, <laughs> which we make bad philosophers uh, on in any any front. Um, but one of the things that, that's sort of pervasive, especially I think within the sciences. Um, is the sense, you know, there's sort of a, a, at least a, a weak scientism that runs through, I think, most of our scientific communities. Uh, and, the, and coming into knowledge, it's sort of seen as sciences, science or you know, things you learn at university are things that you may know. That I can, I can know certain things about the universe because we have experiments and so on that back them up. And I think one of the things that maybe the Enlightenment was very successful in doing was pushing things like, religious matters in the categories of uh, be belief or faith or other sort of this feathery realm that is not accessible by what we would call knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I guess coming along the lines of what you talked about, the link between knowledge and responsibility, how do you see that as playing out over and against a culture of believism 
within within the church and from the perspective outside of the church. Yeah. You want to go for a long walk? <laughs> That'd be better better done that way. Um, well, I'm very sympathetic with the critique that Polanyi and Percy would have made of the Enlightenment, that the paradigm is off. It isn't really true to the way we know anything. Um, I don't think, in fact, we do know in objective ways as against subjective ways. I don't think there's a realm of life which is accessible to us as objective knowledge and then, you know, we live more you know, at home with the subjective values of our lives. The Cartesian split, as it's called, the, the split that Descartes imagined between facts and values, isn't one I think that's really true to, the, to reality. I mean, it isn't how life really works for us. But you see, if we, if we live with those being the words that shape our experience, then, um, you know, it's a very small universe where we could say, well, this is a fact, man. Um, these are the facts, aren't they? Uh, but anybody who's done any kind of philosophical study and maybe any kind of lo- longer living in the world realizes that people who are equally bright and brilliant people with equally good PhDs see the facts differently. They read the world differently. They interpret the world differently. So when Polanyi says the viewer is always viewing, he's arguing something very important in that. But in fact, I never am in the position of you know, removing myself from my viewing. I stand outside of myself as I interpret, as I make judgments. I'm always there. Uh, um, it's a longer conversation to have with anybody, really. But I don't think it's a possibility where, in fact, we have a universe or a, a historical moment where belief or believism, you know, runs things. Um, uh, well, anybody with any kind of Christian, you know, commitments in this room tonight you know, has things to be ashamed about in terms of what Christians have argued for and how they've lived and what the church has represented as itself in the world. Uh, even as there are, you know, there's a long line of things which are really awfully important to human flourishing that people of faith have argued for and brought into being. Uh, um, so it's an honest conversation to have. I, I, I don't think that, you know, we... Um, you know, we have access to a universe where there is objective knowledge as over against subjective knowledge. Uh, um, Polanyi puts it this way at one point. Two plus two is a moral equation. Now, you could say it's just math, just arithmetic, you know, just a fact. Uh, Polanyi's argument is it's a moral equation. What does he say when he says that? You see, it's a, it's a statement about the way reality is, about the way things really are in the world. Uh, two plus one is not four. You know. uh, two plus two, he argues, is a moral equation. Um, and we really are having at stake here what's the universe really like, and do we have any ability to interpret it accurately, truthfully? Or are we at our best simply, I don't know, whatever. Um, you have your ideas, I have my ideas. You have your narrative, I have my narrative. My perspective is my perspective, and how you can argue with that. And if that's how we live our lives, I said this to folks at dinner tonight, I don't think we ever will fully become a postmodern society. We can't as long as I have to fly in and out of Dallas Airport week by week. Because air traffic controllers you know, are never going to be postmodernists. The numbers really matter. The arithmetic really matters. You know, it is a matter of perspective whether 2 plus 2 is 4 or not. Um, 
and we're more stretched taut between modern, what we might call modern ideas about reality and life and the human condition and what we might call postmodern. Uh, it's never going to be one or the other completely. Um, if you want to talk more, we could talk more about that. It's a good question. Hi. Hello. What advice would you give to a student who wishes to bridge the gap between learning and caring? Learning and caring? Yeah. Yeah. It may be to begin with to, to rethink what knowledge is about. I mean, if Simone Weil is right in her last words, the most important task of teaching is to teach what it means to know. Well, to, you don't have to become a scholar about that to do a master's thesis on Yada, the Hebrew view of knowing, or even more. You could simply do some serious thinking through for yourself. What am I going to be content with? What am I going to allow to shape my own student ears, my own sense of vocation as a student? Will I, in fact, intellectually speaking, philosophically speaking, theologically speaking, will I connect in my own head this idea that knowledge has to work itself out with responsible love? Will I see it that way? Will I commit myself to that way of knowing? That I will not go along with other other alternatives? And so in some ways, there's a, a creedal commitment to make to this. I will see knowledge like this. I will not see knowledge that way. I will no longer allow the idea that, in fact, it might be okay to be a genius and ignore the cries of a mur- woman being murdered. And how could we talk about a world like that? I will intellectually, cognitively, philosophically, I will create the world I want to live in. And I will say, in fact, that when I know, I realize I've got to care. And I refuse to go along with the language which is mine in my world that, yes, 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 I know, but so what? So that's part of it, I would say. I think part of it also is beginning to, you know, commit yourself to people and places in the world that require that of you. Um, I don't know what, you, what you're studying right now, but I mean, there's nothing that is being learned in this university which wouldn't allow you some place to touch the groaning, complex needs of the world. Um, that's just, you know, that's a possibility. And if you have a hard time being imaginative about that, then talk to me or talk to Carl about that. I mean, we could talk that through whatever you're studying in your major discipline right now. Um, but to begin to see that, in fact, I will not be somebody who get all A's and still flunks life. I will get all A's. I will do my very darndest here to, do, to master my, 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 my study. But you see, unlike the expert in the law and the parable of Jesus, not to master the letter of the law, but to miss its meaning, actually. But how do you do that, really? How will you, in whatever your work is going to be, what are you studying? By the way, biology. Hope to be a doctor. Yeah, I mean, we could talk for hours about that, really. Uh, um, but you see, to be committed to a knowledge that implicates you, I think, is probably the first thing to do. To a kind of knowledge that implicates you, to be able to think through what's it mean to see myself as implicated in life, implicated in history, as responsible for the way things turn out in the world. It's a very, very important question to ask. Because you see, these student years, these stu- years of being, having the vocation of learner as you do, 
they will move into the rest of your life pretty quickly, more quickly than you might imagine right now. And you see the kind of choices you're making now about what you do and why you do it and where you go and what you get involved with. You know, you're forming habits of heart now that will shape you for the rest of your life. So if you're somebody now who is so burrowed into, you know, I've got to get this done, you know, and without some sense of paying attention, that beautiful image of Simone Day's of learning to pay attention to what's going on in the world, what really is going on in the world. And again, it's that parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, for theological reasons, for historical reasons, for sociological reasons, these two experts in the law on their way to Jericho, they couldn't even see a neighbor. Now, how is that possible? Well, you see it is, because it happened, you know, this last year in Washington, D.C., in the Apple Store. You see, it's a perennial problem for human beings. We can be people who master the letters of the law and miss the whole point. Thank you. Somebody up there? Yeah. I can't, but there's a microphone almost at your face. Oh, uh, hi. <laughs> um, so, I'm, I'm curious how you envision this, this implication and this responsibility within the confines of the university itself and not as viewed towards students who will ultimately sort of go out into the world but from the ivory tower um, for people who are looking at careers um, in academia what sort of what sort of action um, do you feel is responsible and meaningful um, per your discussion mm-hmm. what are you studying English. How far along are you? I'm in my second year of a PhD second program. PhD program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think my call is that all of us need to become activists somehow. You know, that really the better life is to leave the academy and to go off and you know, pay to school in Nairobi or something. I mean, that's not what I'm saying here. Um, I do think, my father was a University of California scientist for all of his life. So I have watched the world that you folks live in for most of my life. He's now dead, but I honored his work for all the years that he was alive, really. And uh, um, I think that, you know, that vocation needs no justification. I'll put it in those terms to begin with here. Um, I don't think that we need to be in the position of saying, you know, that um, that there are some things that are more valuable done than other things. On the one hand, we might, in a hierarchy, might say, well, if we're just going to judge about human activities in the world, maybe some things have more consequence. Um, But theologically speaking, for me, a huge part of this is that I believe in something called common grace. Uh, It's not saving grace, but it's called common grace. It's a way of of making sense of what most of life is. My wife loves me, and I treasure that love. But it's not going to save me. I love Earl Grey tea in the morning. You know? It's not going to save me. 
Um, I love good stories. You know, Walker Percy's stories, Wendell Berry's stories. I love good films. Uh, they won't save me. Well, are they, are they nothing then? Are they just nothing then? Well, there are certain theological traditions which, in fact, do carve up the universe that way. The only things that really matter to life are those things that save. Well, God alone saves, so that puts most of the rest of us in this room in a hard place. Um, is what we do with our lives then of no value, of no importance? Um, so I often, in conversations with somebody like you, who I don't really know, but if we did get a chance to talk, I probably would try to explore what I would call common grace for the common good. Common grace for the common good. Um, and it is simply a way of making sense of being butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, English professors, novelists, uh, literary critics, uh, kindergarten teachers, junior high teachers, farmers, ranchers, you know, veterinarians, uh, people who, in fact, work for human flourishing. Tomorrow morning I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the relation of Jeremiah to the man Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, if Daniel was the chief political counselor to three different tyrants in the Mesopotamian world, over the course of his whole life, that's what he did. He advised tyrants, dictators. His job was not principally, actually, to create safe space for Jewish religion to be practiced. Our best reading is that as the chief political counselor, he weighed in on irrigation problems and water resources and agricultural issues and military strength and highways being built. Uh, that's what he did for most of his life, really. Now, why did he do that? Well, it's in some ways more than a story that we know fully. But part of why he did it was because he heard Jeremiah say in his letter to the exiles living in Babylon, Seek the flourishing of the city. Pray for its flourishing. Build houses, plant trees, get married, have kids. Pray for its flourishing, because when it flourishes, you will flourish. So the idea of human flourishing, as John Paul II took up so eloquently and passionately for most of the years of his life, what are the conditions in which human beings flourish is a very important question for us to ask. And we actually do need to have people who make rooms like this, who imagine lighting and air conditioning and seats and you know, water bottles and computers and people who actually do all the stuff, in fact, that makes our lives be something more than they might be otherwise. These are common graces. They won't save us from sin, to put it in, in theological terms. But they're common graces of God. They're ordinary graces of God. They are gifts of God to us that make for flourishing. And we are to say thank you for them, really. Um, so I don't think my interest here tonight at all is to say, you know, to be responsible for what you know. It actually requires somehow that you leave the academy and go off and, you know, save people from something in some other part of the world, really. It is, in fact, that there's something important about building bodies of knowledge and disciplines over time and contributing to what we know about the world. And, of course, always built into that for me is that there is some kind of relationship between growing in our knowledge but then growing in our responsibility for what we know. If we have paradigms, philosophically, theologically, which allow us to say, I can know and know and know, and not have to care, that's a problem. One of my favorite readers on these things is Robert Coles from Harvard. He wrote a book called uh, 
The Call of Stories. Maybe you know the book, really. It's a wonderful story about somebody teaching literature in a university setting. But he talks about why it is, as a psychiatrist, he chose to teach courses for undergraduates called the Literature of Social Reflection and invited them into a whole year of study of some of the best writers we have, asking questions about what these ideas meant and what they mean for the way that, we, that life gets lived out in the world. He talked about teaching a course at the Harvard Law School called Dickens and the Law. It's a strange course, really, but he told the dean of the law school, you know, you have a good program here. It's global, it's world-renowned, but you know, never in the three years of the law school do you have students ask the question, what does the law mean? What's it about? What's the purpose of the law? How about if I offer to teach a course for you, I'll call it Dickens and the Law. And so we had students read four or five novels of Dickens over the course of a semester, each one asking the question, so what's the law about? What's its point? What's it mean? Um, I think we can ask those kinds of questions all across the academy in every kind of discipline. Of course, they are specific and concrete, and they need to be worked out with integrity and honesty in every major and discipline and department that exists, but I think those questions can be asked. Yes, over here. I find myself in conversations with people frequently about faith um, or about the condition of the world and poverty and such, um, and it seems to always come down to the same question or a form of the same question, which is, why should I care? Uh, so how, how do you go about answering that question? Mm-hmm. How should I care? Why should I care? Uh, why should I care? Yeah. Well, you see, that really is the question of the Apple Store that night. You know, I hear it. I hear it. I hear it. Why should I care about it? It's a story of Kitty Genovese, a generation ago in New York City. I see it. I see it. Why should I care about it? I wish we could just talk together for a while and me just to come back to you and say, well, talk to me then, and why? Uh, um, um, I don't think any of us really want to live in a world where people don't care. Um, Imagine your own life. I mean, let's just not put it on you here, but just imagine the life in this room here tonight of somebody walking across the Cornell campus and, you know, being stopped and assaulted and beat up and, you know, at least beat up badly. Maybe other things happen that happen too. You know. And 38 people walking by and saying, huh, not mine. I don't have to care about that one. That isn't for me. I'm not implicated in that one, really. You see, we can live in a world like that, and some worlds get to be like that, where there's just society, a social indifference. I'm not going to respond to that. This is different a little bit, and I don't mean it to be cheap for a moment, okay? But I mentioned this morning to some folks, one of my sons is a veterinarian, um, not a Cornell grad, but a Tufts grad, veterinary school. Um, but he spent a year doing an NIH study in India. Uh, he won a, won a fellowship and spent the year working on some questions there and went to visit him during his year there. And I just, traveling around the south of India where he was located, I happened to notice every day a hospital 
And I wasn't taking notes about hospitals. I wasn't going to write an article about hospitals. I just happened to notice hospitals. And every hospital I saw had a Christian symbol on it. It's either a, a Red Cross in the hospital or it was called St. George's Hospital. Every hospital was like that. On the last day going back to the airport, I asked my son, so why is this? What's going on here? Does, does Hindu culture produce hospitals? He said, I don't think it does from what I've seen. And he's not an Indian expert or a Hindu expert. He just said, I don't think it does from what I've seen because the view of karma is so strong in this society that my karma doesn't implicate me in your karma. I have my own things to deal with. I have my own life to work out. You have your life to work out. It doesn't mean, he wasn't saying that all Hindus are bad people and there's no mercy and compassion in Hindu culture. But as a set of ideas, it doesn't grow hospitals. It doesn't make hospitals happen. And we can talk about all that and we can pursue it more fully if you wanted to. But you see, we have to have, I would say, ideas that lead us to care. Ideas do have legs. And you see, if what you committed yourself to about the way life is doesn't call you to care about anybody or anything, then in fact you could live within your own little universe of you. If that's how you construct the reality of your existence, well, okay, but it's a sad life, I would say. Um, it's a sad life, really. And you won't really flourish, and others around you won't really flourish. So if it's going to be a matter of flourishing we're talking about, of people taking care of each other, of creating conditions for good schooling and good businesses and good banking and good politics and all the good things that we really all long for in life. You see, somebody has to care to make that happen. Actually, to put life, put my own life in the line and say, I will bring this about. I'll work to make this happen. Um, why should we care? Well, the alternative is pretty stark. Thank you.